I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today is one of an elite group of coaches that are in the Miami Football Hall of Fame, including Errol Parsegian, Paul Brown, Woody Hayes, Sean McVay, and my guest, John Harbaugh. Since becoming the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, he is the winningest coach in the team's history, has had nine winning seasons, 10 playoff wins, winning the Super Bowl against his brother, the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, and currently one of the most innovative and adaptable coaches in the National Football League. Welcome, friends. John, your uh, adaptable leadership style is elite. In this period of time, with all the unrest going on, your ability to adapt and adjust and to uh, listen, I, I think is remarkable. Thanks. I, I guess, uh, I don't know, probably probably been beat up so many times, you figure out you, you better not get stuck in any one kind of a way of doing things because uh, just as soon as you figure you got something, you got a good way of doing it, you usually have to usually have to change. You know, we, we try to have a theory about we stick to principles. Principles are written in stone, but methods are not, you know, and so you can change the way you operate or how you do something, but try to stick to the principles and the things that you believe in those core values, you know, hopefully those don't change too much. You know, we go back 37 years to when your brother, uh, Joni, uh, your dad and I were all together with Bo Schembechler at Michigan. And that was a, that was reminded when you talked a little bit about the tweet that your dad or the text your dad sent you. Well, you, you lived that too, you know, that time. And uh, I can remember one time we were, we were young, Jed. I hate to say it, but we, you were young too, though. You were like in your, I'm going to say you were early 20s. 20. Yeah, 25, 26, 27. Right? And, um, yeah. and we were like in junior high, and we were playing hockey one morning at 6 o'clock, and you showed up at the rink to watch us play. I don't know how you did it or why you did it, but we sure appreciated you being there. It's funny the things you remember in life. But, you know, those were times that uh, we, we were kids, you know, growing up, and, and you were a part of that. And things do evolve, and they do improve, and they do change. But this this particular evolution in our country or whatever it is is definitely it's definitely been going on for quite a long time and like with sports the connection between you know those those days in the early 70s and now it's kind of remarkable and then dad brought that up and said you know these are the things we, i've heard the stories before you know with the bow and what he's dealing with the players and and the times and the uh just how things were changing in the country and bow had to adapt you know he had to rethink some of the things he was doing and then, then I think adapting was really not too much part of the culture of anybody. You know, it was kind of everybody was kind of set in stone in their ways. But but Bo wasn't. You know, Bo found ways to to acknowledge and and be open minded about what was going on. So I guess that's pretty good learning. You know, experience for Jim and I at a young age just to see that and then have our dad talk about it. It's pretty amazing. Well, you know, I, I remember being in that coaching meeting in '73 when Frank Royals came in. At that time, it was really the Pac-8 and the Big Ten that were really you know, forefront on integration. And Frank, down in Arkansas, they hadn't really begun to integrate. And he came in and really wanted to try to understand what it was like to try to uh, coach black athletes in Aston. 
That's incredible. I mean, it's, I'm sure Frank Burles is one of the greatest coaches of all time, and, and I assume he, he, he integration went just fine. I don't know, but I can remember just growing up then, even having questions for my dad, you know. So I was born in 60, uh, 62, and that's two years before the Civil Rights Act was even enacted. Of course, you're a kid through that time and all that, but I can remember, like, asking my dad, you know, why aren't there black players at Alabama or in the Southeast Conference? And, you know, and he would just say, well, it just hasn't hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's coming real soon. And then when they did start to integrate, I was kind of like, I got a little older. I said, Dad, why would those why would those guys even go down there and play? You know, they, they weren't wanted before. You know, they should they should come up here where, where they've been. You know, that's my junior high thinking at the time. He told me something I never forgot, and I t- I've talked to Ozzie Newsom about this. But he said something along the lines of, well, because they can, because they've earned the right to, and because it's an accomplishment, it's a victory that their families can take pride in, you know, and, and it's very meaningful. So to break those barriers down and to, to be going to school in, the, in those schools down those big state schools down there and, and to play was something that was quite, you know, it was a big, it was a big thing. And I guess as a young kid, I didn't get that. Then I had a chance now to work with Ozzie Newsom for all these years here and talk to him about those times because he was in that first group of players that, that broke the color barrier in the Southeast Conference. And, you know, that's exactly what he said, too. He said that was that was a breakthrough. That was, you knew you were doing something that was going to change the world, you know, just by going to play football, you know, at a place yes. like Alabama. And it's still going on today, Jed, as you know, in different kind of ways. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, you're right. Your movement to become a head coach wasn't easy. I mean, you had five stops as an assistant coach in college, and then you had the Chan Ray Rose brought you into the, into the Eagles. And then Andy Reid retained you. So as you think about your development, obviously your dad, but who else would you say helped mold you as the leader that you are today? That's a great question. You know, I mean, everybody along the way, I mean, there's so many, as you know, it's every, you you kind of are influenced by everybody that you're involved with. And I was blessed to be around great coaches, great assistant coaches all the way through who kind of train you. You know, you get started the right way, you get started the wrong way. I don't know. I got started the right way, but head coaches, Mike Godfrey was big. No, I had no Mike since I was a kid. He made me a GA at Pittsburgh, coached the tight ends, recruited in Ohio uh, just for one year at Pitt. That was an incredible experience because I got to see what a big time program and being a part of that was about. And Sid Gilman was there as a volunteer coach that year. So <laughs> Sid, and I knew nothing about coaching tight ends. You know, really, I I coached running backs. I'd been coaching a couple of years and I was just, I guess I was holding Brian the briefcase for the offensive coaches, but Sid taught me how to teach and then he taught me the mirrored passing attack, you know, that he had, he pioneered and godfathered. So man, I mean, Sid Gilman to this day, I can remember the the lessons, you know, and, and and the ideas that he had. So that was a great blessing. And then Bill Baldridge at Moorhead state coached with him for a year, just a good, nice, wonderful man. And then Tim Murphy and Rick Minner at Cincinnati and Cam Cameron at Indiana. And then, and then got a chance with Ray Rhodes. And I'll tell you, and those guys were all just great in their own ways, but Ray Rhodes, to me, I'm really proud of the fact that, that Ray found me, you know, so to speak, or decided that he wanted to hire me because Ray was tough. You know, Ray was oh, yeah. Ray was a really legendary, hard-nosed ball coach. And uh, and he had a tough program there in Philly and really in the play, but the players loved him. They loved him because he was one of them. He was he was he would anything that he asked them to do, he would do, you know, and he just believed in the same kind of football that I kind of grew up around. I remember he'd come into the come into the office and on Thursday night, you know, and he'd sit down and he'd have a dip in there and he'd put his feet up and say, all right, what's the game plan? You know, and he'd sit in there as long as it took me to explain it and take him through all the tape and everything. Then he'd get out and it was kind of, kind of look at me like, you know, it better work, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, really held you accountable. And, uh, and then just, just a great guy. So 
Oh, man. And then Andy Reid. I mean, you know, gosh. Another guy was Jim Johnson, the, the legendary defensive yeah. coordinator for the Eagles. I really learned the defensive system with Jim that so much of that we're using to this day. So, so many of those principles that, that are built into our defense to this day that the legendary Jim Johnson taught. So, and you think about the coaches, Jed. I know I'm getting going here, but the coaches under Jim, you know, Steve Spagnuolo was with Jim Johnson, Ron Rivera, Leslie Frazier, Sean McDermott, and others. There's just so many great defensive coaches that are running, you know, really the Jim Johnson system to this day. Well, so you come into the Ravens, they bring you in. And as I remember, when you first went in, you really had to do some things culture-wise to change the locker room. To change. Talk a little bit about that, that first beginning and what it was like to really change the atmosphere and, and put your footprint and imprint on the uh, organization. Right. Well, that was it. You know, and it's, it's kind of goes with uh, Dee Bishotti and Ozzie Newsom. Eric Acosta was here then. They knew their place really well, and they knew what they wanted to keep and what they wanted to evolve away from, you know, what they wanted to change, you know. And one of the things they wanted to change was they wanted to be a less divided team. They wanted to be a more uh, a more unified team. I think that was kind of – that was the main thought. And they, they wanted to find a way to bring the offense and defense together. And there was a lot of challenges to that because you had so many kind of big-name guys, especially on the defensive side. And they'd had – they'd been the big brother, so to speak. Sure. That's their term, you know, uh, for, for many years. And, and, uh, and, and Steve wanted to kind of kind of to build the team thing. And that was – that was something at Philly, you know, in Philly with Andy, and then all through the years, with, all the way back to Bo, that that we were kind of about. So we kind of, I think that resonated with them through the interview process. But that was the main difference, and so it wasn't like completely changed the culture. I mean, that's a good word, and, and we talk about that, and I think it's very meaningful. But it's not so much about changing; it's more about redirecting. It was more about like like painting a picture for the guys that you know really, you know, all these great things that are happening here in Baltimore, all these great personalities, these big, strong, tough adversity beating personalities that we had there and the toughness and all that was something that we wanted to keep, you know, and Ozzy brought that mindset. And I think developed that with the players he drafted all the way back to 1996. So it wasn't like we wanted to say, Hey, everything here is bad and it's not good. And we need to overturn everything. We just need to build on it and redirect it just a little bit and kind of, kind of rethink our, you know, our values and who we really are, you know, and what I tried to do was explain to them and convince them that this persona that you have, is not really who you are. You know, I've had a chance now, I would say early on, I've had a chance now to be here for four months and I, I've gotten to know you guys and I've seen you guys work. And and this persona that people have, you know, the, the bad boys or the Raiders of the East and all that, wearing the black hat, you know, it's kind of fun, but it's really not who you are. You know, really what you guys are, you guys are high character guys. You guys are hardworking guys. You're a very blue collar team. And, and even though we have great stars, we don't have, we don't have a star system, you know, and I had to, it kind of did have a star system, but I'd say we're going to change the star system into a into a team system. And the idea is that the brightest stars, stars are the ones that plug in everybody around them. The, star, the brightest star of all is the sun, you know, and the sun is what gives life, gives energy. Everything revolves around the sun, you know, and that's what a star is supposed to do. It's supposed to give energy and life. It's supposed to uplift everybody around them. So that's what we want our stars to be all about. And those guys, that's who they were anyway. Ray was like that. Ed was like that. Suggs was like that. Haloti, those guys, they embrace that. Marshall Yonda, they all embrace that over time. And I think that's kind of what we've evolved into now over a long time. But it was really more of a kind of redirecting and convincing that, you know, we're kind of about something a little different than maybe what people think we're about. Why don't we show them who we really are? Well, you've also had, you've adapted offensively. I mean, changed that your offensive coordinator based on your quarterback. And I think you kind of on the forefront of using data as it relates to decision-making and so forth. You want to talk a little bit about how you how you've evolved to 
a state that you are offensively and so forth? From a data standpoint, that's something we've always we've always plugged into to some degree. And the data guy, the analytics guys, they love us because they see what we do and we make we make a lot of decisions that, that they do agree with and that are data driven or you know historical analytically driven. But they wouldn't love us as much if they talked to me about it because they would know that that we're not buying everything they say, you know, because, <laughs> because, and they know there's a statistical reason for that because is the more you react to like certain uh, averages, you know, and you bring those, the more, the more those averages come back to the middle. So in other words, the more you go for it on fourth down, the less you're going to make it than what the numbers say you are. Now, I don't want to be the one to pay the price for all those right. stops. You know, we're not trying to bring the average back to the middle. The reason that uh, people have been so successful on fourth down is because they only do it in the most advantageous times. So you still got to pick your spots, but also realizing that, you know what, it is, you really do need to go for a lot more than people have historically. And that's been a blind spot for coaches for many years, just a punt. So there's a lot of things to be learned from it, but I still think in the end, you know, as a coach, you got to, you got to, uh, you got to read the tea leaves here. You got to feel the situation. You got to understand what you're facing, what's in front of you, what your opponent looks like and what your odds are of success and how much risk you want to take. And that, that sometimes goes by what you see along with what the numbers tell you. As far as changing the offense, um, never been um, stuck to an offense. I, I was as I grew up, and you mentioned you had the places that you've been. I I never was a guy that was in one system. Like didn't grow up in the West Coast system. Right. So it's not like oh, this is the West Coast system is is my system, so to speak, and this is what we have to do. We got to call it to Jed Hank, and and this is how it's always been done. So this is how we do it. I've never been stuck in that in that mold. And the same is true on defense. And I'm more of a defensive coach. Learned a lot from Jim Johnson, but I've never been stuck to calling it this, that, or the other. We've always been able just because you move around so much. I've always felt like you build a system around your players, and then you build the best possible system that you can teach and can be organized and taught in a simple way to make it as complicated for your opponent and as simple for your players as you possibly can. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't burden them with too much information. Make sure they have the, they have the necessary information and they understand the priorities of what you're trying to accomplish. So if they're going to err – they're going to err on the side of doing it in a way that is is what you want to accomplish. We're not going to burden them with a bunch of things that are going to interfere with their ability to to perform and to compete and not play fast in real time. So, in other words, I guess the point is is that when a, when a talent like Amar Jackson becomes available, and you and you recognize that talent for what it is, you're able to say, okay, we can build something around him. It's not like does he fit into this system, this preconceived notion that we that we have about what our offense needs to look like. You don't even think about that. You think, what could our offense look like with him? And a lot of these plays that we run, they're being run in football, or they, they were run. Even a lot of them were run 40 and 50 years ago. But they're all plays, you know, what would fit his, his, his ability, his, his unique skill set, and then what kind of players we want to put around a player like that to make all this stuff work. And to me, that's what, that's what having a vision or creating a vision is, and then trying to you know, transfer that vision into the minds of the, of the players and the coaches and all that is, is really where the work comes in. But it's paid off in a great way, and I, I think there's a real lesson here, Jed, in, in every area of life, whether it's business or government or anything else, you know, is the idea that there are a lot of people out there with a lot of ability and a lot of talent who are just chomping at the bit to be successful, and, and those of us who are in position to hire people and put people in positions and things like that, you know, sometimes you got to think out of your own, own box and the box of the way things have done and go find motivated, talented people that want to do well and and build something for them and then let them go and, and see what they can accomplish for you. You know, and I, I really believe that's what we've done with Lamar. Well, you've also have eight people who have been on your staff that have moved on to become head coaches. So there must be something that you do in terms of helping to develop them 
because and some people, you know, don't want to promote their people. I mean, one of the great things about working for Bo was he knew that if you busted your butt for him, he was going to try to help you get a job. So I don't know if that you learned that back way back with through your dad or you've seen that and you've developed that thinking yourself. But coaches like to know the head coach is in their corner trying to help them move on. Totally, Jed. I mean, that's such a great point. And just you're right, as a, as a coach's kid, and you were a coach, so you understand this. I mean, coaches work so hard, you know, and they're loyal. They care about the job so much. And they do it and they want to move up and they want to they want that work to pay off for the families. They want to they want to expand. They want to become head coaches, coordinators, whatever the case may be. They want to go as far and as high as they possibly can. And as a head coach, you know, I think you owe it to them because that loyalty is a two way street. Right. And you owe that to them. One of the things we try to do here is promote from within as much as we possibly can. Um, as much as we can, if guys are doing a good job and an opening comes up, I'd like to I want to put move them up the ranks and give them mm-hmm. the titles and the, and the responsibilities and. We try to do a great job with that. And then anytime, anytime I'm asked about one of my coaches, I'm, I, I'll tell, be honest and say, hey, this is what the strengths are and this is what he can do for you, but you should hire this coach, you know. And we've got three or four coaches right now that are absolutely, maybe more, but at least three or four that are absolutely ready to be head coaches in, in the National Football League right now. So talk about the pandemic. I mean, there's something none of us ever anticipated. And all of a sudden, what you and I are doing now became normal. That's crazy. And I mean, I, I would know to Zoom, a Zoom, I have Zoom. Zoom is like your car, go Zoom, you know, and right. here we are on a Zoom call. It's, but, you know, it's been kind of cool because I've spent more time at home. Uh, even in training camp now with this, this uh, different kind of a schedule, I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've get, I'm getting home earlier than any other training camp ever. And I'm, I'm able to take walks in the evening with my wife and, and my wife and daughter before she went off to college. So I'm treasuring those times. I know in the offseason next year, Jed, we will not be in the office as much. There's a lot of work. We, we can get ready for the draft at home. Why not give guys – guys work hard. Give them a chance to, to be home with their families more. You know, again, you get stuck in your way sometimes, and now you say, you know what, there's a better way to do something. I, these things happen for a reason, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I, there's, there's reasons for this. Maybe we all needed to, to – I know, maybe my eyes need to be opened to a different way that you can operate and still get the job done. So in terms of preparing for the season – the way they've kind of modified practice, no preseason games. I mean, how have you been able to adjust to that? Well, it's been different because uh, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, it's more of a college schedule, no preseason games. They ramped up, and rightly so, a long time. This ramp-up period of conditioning and kind of helmets practices went for like three weeks. Right. And then all the main work was pushed right up to the up to the game, just like in college. So pushed to the game. Now, we don't have 105 players like college, so and these nicks and bruises are also pushed up closer to the game. So that is one issue that we're dealing with right now. I think all the teams are, and that's okay. But in the future, what we can take from it, and I'm assuming they're going to have at least two preseason games going forward, is that let's go ahead and wrap our guys up. You know, we did that two years ago. We uh, practiced, started practicing heavy a little bit later two years ago, and it really helped our soft tissue injuries. And and they looked at our schedule, and I think they built some of this, this year's schedule around some of the things us and some other teams did. The idea of, of bringing the guys along, before you just throw them into a football practice. Because, you know, most of the injuries happen in the first three days of training camp, especially the serious injuries. So if you kind of work your way through that, we, we were able to do that, I think, across the league this year. That's something we can all take out of this whole deal. So the protocol that's been set up for the testing and so forth, how do you? Yeah, now I, I, I'm going to sound I, – I, I shouldn't say this on a call, but we get our noses cleaned out every morning, you know, for us. So it's just like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's, but it's a necessary thing, and it's really worked. I mean – What's been demonstrated to me by what the National Football League has done and some of the big colleges, it looks like, 
is that you can do this. You know, you can do it. And, uh, of course, you know, there's different levels of, of ability, financial ability to do it. And the NFL is doing it at the top level right. because they can. But, you know, the protocols, the masks that we wear, the plexiglass. I mean, whoever's, I, I wish I'd have bought stock in plexiglass four oh, months ago. And Zoom, yeah. It's everywhere, you know. All these things, but our guys have been very diligent. We've, you know, knock on wood. We've had very few cases. I think the National Football League has had. Oh man, it's such a low number. It's unbelievable. A positive test. And the thing that I've learned is that football is not a spreader of coronavirus. So that's something I think the colleges, the Big Ten, the Pac-12. I wish they would take heed and let those kids play. Free the Big Ten. Free the Pac-12. You know, let them play. So that your thought in terms of your season? Do you see any? hiccups potentially down the way of where players one of the things Bruce Arians had said early on was he was thinking of always sitting a quarterback out so they wasn't in the meetings that if they had the group tested positive he'd always have a quarterback ready to play I don't know if you've thought about any of that as it relates to position groups we have thought about it and we we haven't done that because we we think we're mitigating with our distance and our mass and things like that Uh, and the contact tracing we have these beepers right here they beep if you get too close for too long this really valuable tool to me it's like Yes, it's possible. I mean, it's possible that things could go south and a team or two could have a problem. Uh, the odds are that it's not going to happen. I think the odds are big that it's not going to happen. So therefore, it's worth trying, you know, and worth doing it and going for it. Good for the country. It's good for the people involved. I think the same. I do believe the same thing for college. I believe that the, the risks are there, but there's risks in any part of life. The upside opportunity for the players, the coaches, fans, students, all those things are really very important, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of important to remember that. I, I don't think, you know, we're not telling medical school students that you've got to put your, 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 your medical career on hold. You've got to completely stop, you know, but we are telling football players that they have to do that. And while there are risks, there are also a really good chance that it's going to work. And the downside of not participating in life could be for elementary school kids, for people working jobs, trying to pay their rent, all these different things. There's a real cost to that too, that should be factored into this equation. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, your success, obviously, you're in the Miami Hall of Fame. You're in there with Woody, with Ara, with Paul Brown. I mean, the accomplishments that you've achieved to date in the last 10, 11 years and one of the winningest coaches in the league and just the way you go about your job and the way you treat people. I mean, you're a really elite leader that's been able to adapt. And um, it's fun to have known you so long. Appreciate it. I mean, the Miami thing is probably the biggest thing. I mean, those coaches you named, and a lot of people don't know about the cradle of coaches and all those amazing coaches that are from Miami of Ohio. Take a lot of pride in that. You know, Ray Lewis and Ed Reed, they got their U, Miami, but I tell them that um, Miami University is the first Miami, you know, and uh, yeah, so we take a lot of, a lot of pride in that great place. Thanks for bringing uh, that up. Unbelievable. Well, hey, good luck to the team, your family, and really appreciate our friendship and, and you taking time during the, the start of the season to be able to visit with us.